You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. All right, guys, welcome to another Land of Legacy Habitat Heroes podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are super excited for this podcast um, because we're getting to step back into the realm of habitat management and bobwhite quail specifically. Um, we had so many questions and emails and comments about the last mm-hmm. um, podcast that we did with Kyle Hedges from Missouri Department of Conservation. And... Frank Longcarriage was also involved in that. And I hope you. Got, I hope I got his name right. But That's Frank right. is with us. Frank, are you there? Yeah, you bet. I'm here. Did, did I get Glad it right? Yeah, Longcarriage, right okay. on. There you go. Perfect. So, Frank, how long have you been with the Missouri Department of Conservation? Uh, about 14 years. This is my 14th wow. year with the department. Okay. Yeah, 14 years there, and uh, you. You and Kyle kind of spearheaded the research um, that I, I believe that is completely over with now, right? Right. Yeah, all the field work wrapped up in uh, at the end of January this year. So field work is complete. So we're now into the data analysis uh, and publication phase. Awesome. That, this is where the, the old typing behind the desk job comes in, right? Oh yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, there'll be your, your there'll be a part. lot of that, a lot of uh, tied to the desk, going through the data. Luckily, we have a a really great biologist and ecologist that is in uh, the department's resource science division. His name is Tom Thompson, and he's going to be crunching most of this data. So he uh, he really do, has done a great job so far, and, and he'll be the one that's tied to the desk most. Most of the three of us, but I'm you're, sure we'll spend a fair amount of time crunching numbers together. That's awesome. awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely, you know, we had so much, so many comments and people very interested and in also looking at cattle and, and wildlife relationship in a totally different light after the last podcast. So it was a great chance for us to go, wow, there's there's people that are that are hungry for this information, so we need to have uh we need to have Frank come on and probably have you guys continue to come on in the future um just because they uh, it's it's research as you uh, talking with you guys 
behind the scenes when we're not recording and it sounds like it's research that people are hungry for and, and definitely definitely interested in implementing yeah absolutely we have we have and i think tom might have mentioned this in the previous podcast and by the way i hate to give him his credit but he did a very good job in that <laughs> podcast so. <laughs> um but anyway we have we have gone uh to several states giving this presentation at various quail conferences and and even nationwide wildlife conferences we've we've done this for the folks at quail forever in kansas and nebraska and, and missouri so we've the, the word has gotten out and this this research has has opened some eyes from a lot of people it, and what's going to be more exciting i think is you know a lot of the research a lot of the data that we talked about was was year-to-year data or things that that we can kind of put together sitting in our office but when we really crunch all of this together the five years combined i think we're really going to see some great things out of it and I'm really excited for the publications that come out and, and whatever presentations that, that we're able to give. I think it's the, the future is really going to be good, I think, for disseminating this, this research project. That's, that's awesome. And one of the other things I think that was a common theme on the feedback that we heard, too, was we always talk about management and wondering, okay, how big of an impact am I having? And just with the year-to-year information that you guys have shared – there's you guys are seeing changes and you guys are seeing um, impacts and and I think that's super encouraging for someone out there who is thinking okay I I want to do something to the land I want to manipulate the habitat specifically for you know X species and just what you guys have shared so far is super positive encouraging knowing that, again that that you can and will have a positive impact if you do the right things if you take the right steps and take the right strategy so. That's just further um, motivation to get out there and, and actively be doing something positive on the landscape. Yes, you're you're abs- you're right. We, um, you know, one of one of the great things about this research that I think has has opened my eyes is is some of the things that that we recommend or that or that needs to happen are are fairly simple mm-hmm. steps that folks can take. And you can, I think you can, Kyle talked about the tall trees and, and the, the predator perches and the predator lanes. Those are small steps that a person can take to make a pretty good, pretty significant impact. So I think the beauty of this is that this isn't rocket science. This isn't something that it, that is, is hard to, to grasp hold of. Uh, folks can take this information, and I think, you know, at a, at a relatively um, – minimal cost and at, with with you know a little bit of time can i think see some improvements in their quail numbers it's uh it's it's things that, that folks can take to improve their their land and and their farming practices but also increase quail and other small game at the same time so i see it as a win-win on that that perspective absolutely and that's yeah, what hit that's that hit what, home there yeah exactly that's kind of like when it comes from matt and i is consulting with with a lot of deer hunters or turkey hunters it's like how can we make the biggest improvement with the least amount of dollars or with without having to sell half the farm just to manage the other half? How can I make the biggest improvement? And yes. and right. it always comes down to how can I really, you know, if you can't, it's, it's hard for a lot of landowners, as you probably deal with a lot, Frank, that um, it's hard for a lot of landowners to have a completely recreational farm where they don't make any money off of it 
all the money is going into the farm and not coming back out. What you guys found was you have the ability now to work with a with the business side of it, with the actual with the with the money making side of the farm that also benefits the wildlife. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. And, and honestly, yeah. moving forward, those right there are the are, are the key factors in actually making a large scale impact. Because again, we're not really disrupting the farming practices. You know, maybe maybe a little bit, but we're not saying okay, this whole property has to be devoted to you know just straight habitat. There's little things that we can do that, and on a large scale, if we impact and get this information out there, can be shared, and it and actually do something. We can see those again, the, those results that we're looking for again, and not impacting the overall income on a property. That's big. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's that's big and that's encouraging. And I think Kyle, um, when when you ask him that question, what would he choose, fire or grazing? I think that opened a lot of people's eyes uh, when he chose grazing, because absolutely you could um, could implement some some grazing practices on private land. They could have profound impacts on your quail population, but also make you money. And that is that's a wonderful thing. For sure. And, and, and not only that, like, and you combine that with if you're trying to improve a cattle operation. So, like, take my family farm, for instance. I want to maximize our cattle operation. Well, one of the things we can do is implement summer grazing or summer pasture to where we go back into more native worm season grasses and wildflowers, um, plants that are more productive during the summer months. And since they're more productive during those months, the cattle graze on them and they continue getting better gains rather than just kind of staying lukewarm on cool season pastures. Maintaining, yeah. And so we want to continue gaining weight throughout the summer. And uh, and not only by doing that are we improving the cattle operation, but we're improving the, the habitat for the quail and, and the other game species as well. So a sure. lot of wins here. Yes, you bet. Yeah, I... Uh, I forget what January 29th we release this podcast with Kyle. For <laughs> for our listeners that may have not had a chance to listen to that one, go back and listen to the full in depth on the research that Kyle and Frank um, conducted with the Missouri Department of Conservation. Managing Coming from and improving that, quail habitat. That's what it's title. called. Yeah, that's the title of it. Frank, give me a and our listeners a your best in a nutshell of that research. Okay. Um, so in a, in a nutshell, kind of stepping back and looking at a broad, a broad sense, um, the Department of Conservation has, has a long history of managing quail based on a, a model that we call the traditional model, which is, is based on small-scale farming practices. Um, the way farms used to look in the 50s and 60s when they were small acreages, they had brushy fence rows. Everybody had a garden patch, maybe uh, that that had a, that grew up in weeds in late summer. Uh, the 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 crops that were grown there uh, were not planted and, and harvested in the most efficient manner. So there was there was good weedy growth. Or large scale herbicide use may not have been common. So there was there was weedy growth in the crops. But I think as important or more more important. These farms had stock animals, so these had uh, beef cattle, they may have had horses, they may have had sheep, whatever, it was kind of a diverse farm, and, and these, these livestock needed grass in the spring and summer months 
to survive. So there was always some pasture left. And the pasture at that time wasn't uh, Kentucky 31 fescue. It would have been a mix of, of native pastures that were, were available in Missouri, little blue stem, big blue stem, even, even broom sedge, which people look upon as kind of an inferior grass. But it, it provides a, a very good quail nesting substrate. So all of these farms had had the the components the quail needed they had the grass for nesting they had the the weedy cover for and bare ground for for broods and they had the brushy habitat and fence rows for winter so as we as a department have managed our properties like that um, at the same time we have other properties that are large-scale native prairie grasslands so these would be native prairie that have been here for for thousands of years a very diverse plant species mix, lots of forbs, lots of legumes, and a good mixture of low woody cover. But what we were seeing is, is quail reproductive output was sometimes two to three times better on these grasslands than on these traditionally managed areas. So Kyle and I started to ask the question of why was this going on? Was this something that was truly, was this an anomaly, something that we just kind of anecdotally noticed or was this something that was truly happening across southwest Missouri on our public lands and if so what were the mechanisms or the dynamics that were were driving that so we initiated this study where we radio collared uh, quail on grassland sites and traditional sites and monitored them throughout the breeding season and what we saw was was adult survival was greater on the grasslands Nesting success was significantly greater on the grasslands. We're talking low to mid 40% on the grasslands versus around 30% on the traditional areas. So, um, you know, 10 to 15% better on grasslands. Uh, brood survival was better, and that resulted in overall better numbers of quail come hunting season. And that's what it's really all about. So in a nutshell, that's what the research was looking at, and those are some of the broad uh, findings that, that we came up with, was these large grassland areas that, that were large in scope, fairly large in scope, native areas that were dominated by grasslands where the, the, the dominant management was fire and grazing, outperformed these traditional conservation areas where we did a lot of food plots, a lot of tree plantings, uh, you know, just the traditional conservation area management that, that we've come to know in Missouri. Yeah. Awesome. So there you have it in a nutshell for our listeners, what that research looked like. If you want to hear more, go back to January 29th to hear the full uh, hour-long interview with uh, Kyle talking about that. Um, Frank, now let's talk a little bit about your background. And, and for our listeners, we're, we're moving to a point where we're going to dissect how to improve the quail habitat on your place, on your farm, or if you bought a farm, how do you go about setting it up to make it more attractive and more productive for the bobwhite quail? Um, but first, we need to get a little bit about background on Frank. Frank, You've been 14 years with the MDC. Where where were you before then? All right. Um, well, I uh, I did my master's. We'll go back to, to college. I did my master's degree work at the University of Arkansas, and I studied greater prairie chickens in the Flint Hills. I was looking at 
uh, the impacts of grazing and fire on greater prairie chicken survival rates, movements, and nest success. Um, from there, after I got my, after I finished up my master's, I got a job in southeast Kansas, uh, right around Fort Scott, and I was working on a fairly large-scale quail project. Uh, what was going on at that time was the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks had started a, a new quail initiative where they were um, really pouring cost share dollars into that landscape uh, to get folks to to um, improve quail habitat on their working farms in hopes to jumpstart that population. That um, that part of Kansas was traditionally one of the the hot spots for quail hunting uh, years ago, but it's kind of it had kind of dropped off due to a lot of reasons. Um, uh, fescue and extensive croplands and tree tree encroachment, things like that. A lot of the same things that we deal with in western Missouri, they were seeing in southeast Kansas. So I worked on that project, and that entailed radio collaring Bob White and following them around and um, taking habitat uh, measurements and, and all, you know, the, the, the stuff that a basic wildlife technician does on a radio telemetry project. Um, I worked on that project for a year, and I made some great contacts, which I'll always be thankful for. Um, from there, I got a, a permanent full-time job back in Arkansas, working for the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission as a biologist in Fayetteville. And um, I worked on a management area, but uh, I did a, a lot of other, you know, things beyond that. We we did quite a bit of bear work in that part of the state. Um, a little bit of quail work. It wasn't a, a huge population of quail there, but I dabbled in that a little bit. But my dream had always been to work for the Department of Conservation in Missouri. I was raised in Neosho, and, and I always thought the department had a had a world-class outfit. So my dream was to, to work for the department. And um, so in 2005, Kyle Hedges actually hired me to be his biologist. And I worked out of Greenfield office, there around Stockton Lake as his biologist. I only worked for him for six months before I promoted to my, my current position that I'm in now. Um, so I'm grateful for Kyle for giving me the chance uh, to come back or to come work for the department. And it's it's developed into a, 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 a relationship where we're colleagues, but we're also good buddies. And so I'm, I've, I appreciate the opportunity that he's given me. Mm. You said a lot of stuff there that made me go, I want to hear more about your oh, research yeah. from the prairie chickens and the Flint Hills. What was no, that? absolutely, yeah. What did you find yeah. out with fire and grazing and the prairie chickens? Okay, so we talk about fire and grazing in Missouri. What they do in the Flint Hills is vastly different. Mm-hmm. Um, if, uh, if any of you have been out there during um, spring turkey season. Oh, yeah, so burn the whole place. Early April. Um, you'll notice that there's generally smoke in the air almost every day. Yep. The Flint Hills never lost its fire culture. It's had a fire culture um, since European settlement. It's one of the few places that never lost its culture of fire. Um, but in the in the in the 70s, 80s, um, there was a a new grazing system that was developed called. Um, early intensive stocking in which they were stocking um, 
cattle at twice the stocking rate, but grazing them half as long. Uh, it's, it's a system that was is, was pioneered by Kansas State University and is very and has become very popular in the Flint Hills. And one of the cornerstones of that is annual burning. So um, instead of burning every you know three to four years that we that a lot of places do, we do in Missouri or a lot of other rangeland places do. They try to burn annually, and they burn a lot of their pastures. So there is not a lot of refuge for these prairie chickens to nest. So when you're, take, when you're taking a 1,000-acre pasture and you're burning all of it uh, for, the, for the express purpose of getting more and better grass for your cattle to graze, you don't leave a lot of residual cover for prairie chickens to nest in. So that system, what we found was nest success on prairie chickens was exceedingly low during my study, about 17%, mm. um, because these prairie chickens could only nest where there was residual cover, and that tended to be like wet draws that the fire wasn't really effective when it got to, so it kind of went out. So there was a little bit of residual grass. Well, these were were very small areas and very easy for predators to hunt those small unburned patches rather than large unburned pieces of prairie where a prairie chicken could, could nest. So um, prairie chickens have not have declined in, in the Flint Hills uh, for, for several years. Uh, it once used to be the stronghold of prairie chickens in Kansas, and they're still, they're still huntable in good numbers, but that population has declined, and um, the fire and grazing regime um, there may may not be optimal for prairie chicken um, nesting and, and brood habitat. So contrast the Flint Hills then with the Smoky Hills, which are just north and west of Salina, so a little bit further west, a little bit less rainfall than in the Flint Hills. And prairie chicken numbers there are, are very good. Numbers have been going up, and, and it's, it's, they have a really good population there. And there's a lot of grass. Uh, yet folks don't burn annually, um, burning there maybe once every two to three to four years, and they don't burn entire pastures. So there's a lot of unburned grass for these prairie chickens to nest in. So, uh, you know, it goes back to, you know, fire and grazing can be really good for prairie chickens, and, and, and it's, a necess it's, it's a necessary part of having good chicken numbers, but um, there's places where you can have too much fire and, and too intensive grazing. And that may be some of the some of the reasons that the Flint Hill prairie chicken numbers have have been declining over the years. That makes perfect that sense bring to up me. Huge, huge, great. I mean, great points. Yeah. Great points. Grazing is great when it's used appropriately. Fire is great when it's used appropriately. Um, I'd be curious what the fire ecology, of the like fire history of the Flint Hills is. If they're burning every year, I imagine that's not the way it was burned naturally with. Uh, with natives and then also when Native Americans and also lightning strikes, um, right? And so yeah, right. that makes it makes perfect sense. And, and, it, and it it that very principle though can be extrapolated over into managing for the right cover uh, for white-tailed deer for turkey nesting habitat. Just the same, you know, that's why we talk about the fire regimes on properties that we visit, they're broken up into units and it's not burning mm -hmm. the entire property every single year. You burn on rotations and do different pockets and put them out across the landscape where every single year something's getting burned, but every single year other things aren't. 
And then you have this, if you will, mosaic of regeneration across the property that has varying stages and composition of, of natives, you know, from woody browse to grasses to brambles components, all these different forbs, and they're all growing back at different heights. More annuals versus yes. more perennials. Yep. No different from what you just said there from a prairie chicken standpoint, but, you know, same can be said for upland species. So it's really, really, really incredible. Yeah, you're right, and and it's that it's that diversity. If you if you go out to the Flint Hills, um, after the fires have gone through and the grass starts to grow up, you'll notice it's really grass dominated based mm. because of the timing of the fires. Yes, and those landscapes are pretty monotonous in terms of their their forb and grass component, and that diversity is is lost out there. But it's critical for any wildlife species. Any species that, that relies on a diversity of, of foods and habitat types, white-tailed deer, wild turkey, quail, doesn't matter. That Having that diversity of cover types and food types is absolutely critical. No doubt. No doubt. It's, it, it's does crazy. he listen to the podcast, yeah. too? I love that, using that, that D word. word. The yeah. D word. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're on the same. I think we're on on the same page. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. What about your research out of southeast Kansas? Any kind of nuggets from that research? You said you were only there, I think, a year. Yeah, I was there a year, and I was the technician, so I I collected the data, and um, I gave it to the PhD that was analyzing it. But being a technician, I was. I was following these birds annually, I mean, not annually, but daily. And so I got, you know, intimately familiar with the birds that I was was um, tracking. And, you know, I, I what was cool about it is I started I started in February of one year, and I, I was my, my time there ended in February of the following year. So I got to see a whole annual life cycle of quail. And that was really interesting because one of the things that I got to see was this was this annual kind of semi migration of quail that I that I really didn't know about. I grew up quail hunting. Um, that's that's just what we did. We you know took my father and I we took maybe a week uh, during the rifle season and hunted hunted deer and of course we turkey hunted spring and fall. But after that it was it was quail hunting every weekend. That's what my dad grew up doing, and that's what I grew up doing. So I was, I was familiar with quail as a hunter, but I was only familiar based on where we found them during hunting season, right? Mm. And so what I noticed were these were these kind of mini migrations, I guess I call them. So when I was trapping these quail, were in hardcore woody cover where you would expect to find them during hunting season. But as they broke, as these coveys broke up in the spring, invariably these these males first, then the females followed. They would they would sort of migrate to the most open, highest landscape around. And the males would set up their calling posts there, and then the females would go to nest. And these were were higher up on the landscape. They were more open fields and more grassy dominated. And that's where these quail chose to nest. What was interesting is when the females raised their broods on these uplands, I mean, they were all uplands, but they were higher up on the landscape. Come fall, they would go back to the areas where I'd caught them the previous winter. So they would migrate back to these areas. So 
that was really that was really eye opening. That you know, quail are not necessarily born, raised, and die on the same twenty acre piece of property their whole life. They have pretty large scale movements. In fact, some of the the band because I banded all these quail and put radio transmitters on them. I was getting band returns from hunters uh, up to eight miles away from where I had collared these quail. This was during the fall shuffle. So these birds were moving and using a larger piece of the landscape than I ever dreamed of. You know, as growing up, you you hear that quail, you know, are raised on the same 20 to 40 acre piece of property, and that's all they know. But these, these quail are interacting with and using the landscape on a much bigger scale than than I think what we truly understand, and that was that was what I first noticed in this quail study, and and the, the beauty of it is we're seeing the same things with our research here in Missouri that we saw out there. So kind of a confirmation of what I was seeing. What was the furthest a, a quail in the in your latest research with Kyle? What was the furthest that you had a quail move? The furthest that we've documented during the breeding season is about three miles. Um, Now, we have also lost several birds that just disappear, Mm -hmm. that that fall off the face of the earth as far as telemetry goes. That's possibly the, the, the transmitter battery messed up for some reason and died, or these birds moved beyond our ability to detect them. And in that case, we the only way we could find them would be helicopter flights, which we didn't get to do a lot of, but we did some, or band returns from hunters, and we haven't really gotten any of those. So um, what we've documented with radios that we know for sure was three miles. What I saw with band returns in Kansas were, you know, eight miles plus. Oh, it's pretty incredible. You think of that little bird, you know, we're talking – how many ounces in weight would would you say the average bird is? And it's traveling. Yeah, they're six ounces. Six ounces, yeah. and they're traveling mm-hmm. eight miles. Um, you know, recording, you know, scientific you know, research supporting that, and that, that's just wild. And you know what I find, yeah, Frank? All the old timer talk. Let's just call it the old timer talk from as a kid. Oh, quail do this, or the deer do this. <laughs> Most of it comes up to be wrong whenever we start yeah. researching it, or cattle and cattle and wildlife can't can't coexist and uh and obviously you guys proved that that not to be true so one um, one of the really cool things that that i guess i geek out on um and that honestly adam we use from a from a hunting standpoint strategy wise is what you talked about with the bob white and how throughout a given year they're traveling they're utilizing different cover and forages across this diverse landscape that your that you, you know your study area is but over time, what you've been able to see from a, a hunter standpoint and then from a scientific standpoint is that I'm sure there's there's given times of the year where they're preferring this cover and then they're preferring this cover, another portion, um, based on typical weather conditions, food resources, and food availability. But I guess what I'm saying is that's a humongous hunting strategy from let's say a given day it's 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 sunny versus super cloudy or you're getting a little bit of precipitation or you know that's anticipated like you can then begin to change your hunting strategy and we talk about this with deer and turkeys all the time but even down to a quail i'm sure the minute changes in the way you're going to hunt a property 
changes and the, the wind direction that you allow your dogs to, to move through the property and the way you attack it changes based on those conditions. Is, am I assuming that correct, Frank? Yeah, you're right. And it's more of a, it's more of a seasonal thing with quail since mm-hmm. our, since our season is, you know, goes from November, at least in Missouri, goes from November 1 to, to mid-January. You, you cover a, a time when you start off, it's fairly green, it's still fairly warm, and you end up in a time when it could be pretty harsh weather. Um, and then, so, if, so these quail are moving um, as a response to that. So in the early season, and again, when I quail hunt, the, the wind dominates everything as far sure. as the way you approach a cover, you've got to, you've got to, you can't always hunt a cover the, the wind right. I mean, you're going to have some deadhead when you have the wind at your back, and that's just part of it. But always try to work your best cover with, with the wind in your face. But, you know, early in the season, oftentimes, you know, if you've got an area that, that has food plots, quail really aren't going to use them that heavily because they've got so much native feed, especially on these prairies, uh, out in these open grasslands that, that they don't really go to the, the food plots early in early in the season, so most of November, say. Also, um, it's warm enough that they really don't need this hardcore, heavy woody cover, so they may use switchgrass as a as woody cover, or as a, as a surrogate to woody cover, or they may use, um, you know, a clump of big blue stem, or they may not use woody cover at all. They may just hang out in the prairie or in the grasslands all day because, you know, they don't need it for thermal protection. So, a lot of times in, in November, if you hunt the, the way you would hunt in December, targeting hardcore woody cover, targeting food plots, you're probably going to miss several coveys that are just out in the open or out in the grasslands that have everything they need right there and don't need to move. So mm-hmm. seasonally, knowing the habits of quail and knowing what you have in your hunting area, what resources you have, can make huge differences on on how you hunt and how you approach a property so you're exactly right with that Hmm. okay that that uh, my mind is just always spinning when i talk to you or kyle about quail um just because a lot of the stuff you guys are finding in the quail is what we've always assumed and found with other species other species species. and it's like man it is so everything is so closely related and intertwined that um that it's it's it makes you wonder how come it took to almost 2019 to start figuring this stuff out and i'll say this it's it's wildlife species that have the opportunity to be on diverse properties those that aren't that don't have that wide range of habitat and food selectivity and proper security and this and that they may not see what we see but the properties that do offer this diverse cover and forage aspect um i guess let's just say habitat you do get to see this this type of thing. That's why we preach it so much, and that's why it's good to have you know a sounding board from your standpoint of guys. That that's what we need out there. We need that diversity for for quail, different seasonalities. So it's awesome. Yeah. So Frank, yep. let's talk about let's take your research and everything and your hunting. Um, of course, you guys are diehard quail hunters as well. Um, Let's take that and go into a person that has purchased a property that want to uh, manage to improve the habitat, but specifically they're interested in bobwhite quail. 
what would mm-hmm. you first walk us through, like if you were a, a consultant, a quail consultant, and you're looking at it and saying, okay, what can we do to make this better for the quail? All right. So the first thing that I'm going to mention or recommend, and it's it seems kind of intuitive, but in, in, in a lot of a lot of the landscape, um, it may be a problem. Is you you want to buy a piece of property that has even if it doesn't have quail on it, you want it to have quail nearby um, because you've got to have a population source to draw from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that kind of sounds, you know, like intuitive, but there are a lot of places in the Ozarks where they're really not quail anywhere around. And that's a problem. You can do all the quail habitat management you want to do, and, and you may improve your, your habitat quality for for other local resident species but if there's no quail around to colonize that you're going to be disappointed so you need to make sure that the area that that you're going to look for has quail you know within a within a radius that they can easily colonize what would you say that radius is on a general basis then oh i would say within i don't know within five or ten miles would probably be good because you can get some connecting corridors established or built from one piece of property to that that doesn't have quail to a property that that has birds. Sure. Um, but I would I wouldn't go much more than that because how would a person we, how would a person go about establishing that that there is a population within that neighborhood? Let's say a person is hasn't even bought the farm yet, and they're like, I'm looking for a farm that I can grow quail on. In the deer world, we stick out a trail camera. But, yeah, but how, how do you a, how do you do a census a little survey? Bit, yeah, quail? it's more difficult with quail. There's not as many yeah. of them. There's more. You have to have key key things in place to make that happen. How would you? Right. Would it be covey counts, or would you look for spring whistle counts, or <laughs> is that something? Yeah, covey counts are, are tough because they're so specific on when you have to do them. Um, yes. And you only have a few minutes every morning to get them mm-hmm. done. Um, word of mouth would be great if you could talk to the, the the local biologist in the area. They should have a pretty good grasp of, of where where birds are, if there's still local po- pockets of, of coveys remaining. Um, talk to the neighbors. Talk to um, people around the area that, that you're interested in. And then you can also go out on on a really nice late May, June day and just drive the roads and listening for Bob Whites. Um, they're really going to be really going to be whistling there then at that that time of year. And if there's birds in the area, you'll surely if you cover enough ground on on the dirt roads in the morning, say from daylight to 10 a.m., you'll you'll pick them up. Um, so those would be the, that would probably be the way I would, would go about establishing if the area that you're that you want to buy is has got birds around. Mm. Very, very interesting. That definitely sounds like you're going around chasing a turkey, a tom turkey <laughs> goblin, and you're listening for a Bob White to, to whistle. Yeah, yeah. What about, yeah, right. so let's say we found we found the property, and we've done our research, and we've talked to neighbors that have that say they see some coveys, and we went through the spring, and, and we heard some whistling, bought the property, and it's a transformation. What are some of the key components and I know diversity being the key word, 
But what are some mm-hmm. of the key components of a, in the life of a bobwhite quail that a, that a landowner would need to help increase the survival rate of, of the quail? Sure. So the, the, the thing that, that Kyle and I preach all the time, and it's not, a, it's not a concept that we've discovered or came up with. It's a concept that's well used and, and well known in the quail world. It was developed by Fred Guthrie from Oklahoma is this concept of usable space. Basically, it's space that's usable for bob whites throughout the year. And so what I would do is I would, and, and, and quail need a few certain habitat components. They need grass for nesting. They need forbs uh, for their insect component and for the, the seed value for raising their young and throughout the entire year, and they need some low shrubby woody cover. Those are the three broad components that they need. Now, you can you can put them out in various configurations and in various uh, amounts, but those are the three things that you absolutely have to have. And what I would what I would focus on first is establishing usable nesting and brood cover. Because if you don't raise them, you you can't hunt them in the fall, right? So the woody cover that they're going to use in the winter is useless if they're if you don't raise the birds in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I would I would establish see see what the farm has for usable um, nesting and brood habitat. So we're talking low growing grasses, erect, um, not sod forming grasses. So your are, native grasses are are key. Okay. Uh, even if it's broom sedge, you can do a lot of good work with broom sedge. Um, what are some of your favorites? Stem, yeah. What are some of your favorite grasses? Okay, so little blue stem is probably the number one. My favorite grass is little blue stem. It uh, It's a key quail grass all across the Midwest. It doesn't get too thick. doesn't get too tall. It, it, it grows in really... Um, really nice clumps, uh, makes a great nesting substrate where they can tuck a nest under. So little blue stem is my favorite, but side oats, grandma, it does, it's not long lasting. Side oats kind of gets choked out by big blue stem fairly easily, but that's a good one. Uh, of course, big blue stem and Indian grass, but you've got to, you've got to use it, use it wisely in terms of keeping it where it doesn't get too thick. But what about switchgrass? Let's say switchgrass. There's a in the deer hunting world. People drooling over switchgrass is, is a is a buzzword. Everybody yeah. loves it. How is it for quail? Well, it's interesting you say that. I've I've found several quail either hunting or in my time in Kansas during telemetry in switchgrass. Um, I wouldn't say that it was, and, and they, they were using it during times of heavy snow cover. They were using it as surrogate mm-hmm. to woody cover, so yep. it, it, it could could perform well like that. That's why the deer hunting it, world it, guys love it, is because it stands yeah. up better than a lot of the grasses in, in Absolutely. snow. But yeah. from a nesting standpoint, it would be really low on the list because it gets too tall, too robust, and too thick. Now, if you had it around as a scape cover, I think that would be fine. But I I wouldn't I wouldn't establish my nesting cover based on switchgrass. Okay, this gets too very good points. Too too thick. What about Forbes? What are some of your favorites for quail? 
for quail, um, the, the legumes are, are super important. So Lespedes is native Lespedes is that there are these prairies that, that we have are full of, of native Lespedes. Um, and you've got other legumes like desmodiums, the stick tights that we, mm. we get on us when we're you yeah. know, hunting. If you, if you break those open, there's a little tiny bean inside of them. It's awesome quail cover, or awesome quail food and quail cover. But um, I would start with with those legumes because they provide great insect attracting uh, properties, and they have wonderful, wonderful nutritious value, nutrition value. Um, sunflowers are great. Um, partridge pea is wonderful. Uh, when I was down south back this summer, I took a tour of some of the southern quail plantations. And one of the things that was really popped out is they have partridge pea there in abundance. It just grows naturally on the landscape. Um, and it's a wonderful quail food. It's a, it's a legume, and it provides that, that bean and the seed. It's wonderful. Illinois bundle flower is another good one. Um, there's a host of, of forbs, but what I'm looking for is, is forbs that have a nutrition value with them. So they, they have a value that a flowering component that's going to attract the insects, but also that flowering component ends up with a fairly large seed or bean that these quail can eat. Okay. So those are some of the key ones that I would, would what look What about for. woody shrubs, woody, uh, woody species? Yeah, the, the, the king seems to be uh, wild plum. Wild plum is great. It grows, you know, in those colonies that are, you know, grows in those kind of round colonies. Uh, that would be the king of the shrubs, but there's a lot of quail use of rough leaf and gray dogwood. That's yep. really great stuff. Um, blackberry can can provide some some woody cover. It doesn't stand up as well as some of the plums, but but it can provide some, some density and some good protective cover from from aerial predators. But a wild plum is is the king, but gray dogwood, rough leaf dogwood are also really good stuff. I think awesome. it's important at this point to just stop and say we did not pay you to say that because <laughs> those are a lot of the very similar species that we talk about um, from from other applications within you know wildlife, but they they have so many different benefits and service so many different things for various species and and uh, I swear we didn't pay them to say that, <laughs> yeah. but thank you for we, saying it. We talk about the the plums yeah. was one of them we highlighted a lot in our plant and animal profiles for screening for deer and people a lot of times plant just switchgrass monocultures and are like, fellas, we can create uh, habitat for quail and other small game as well as deer um, and still provide the purpose of of a screen just by planting shrubs instead of just a monoculture of grass. So yeah, yeah. so. One, one of so many. It's interesting you brought that up. I don't know how many. So, so I'll say this: the, the biggest deer that I see every year, if I'm going to see big deer, will be when I'm quail hunting. And I'm it's coming with you. <laughs> they'll come out of a plum thicket or some kind of dogwood thicket, and they'll bust out of the middle of it right in front of you and just you know scare you. But I that that's a pattern that I see year after year from Southwest Missouri all the way out to Kansas. This, and they they really like those plum thickets. So maybe a covey quail in them, or maybe a, a big buck. You never know. But it's, man, it's, oh, man. it's cool that you mentioned that because I I I've noticed that same pattern. Yeah, I'll it, say I'll say this at this point. 
If you're interested in those types of shrubs, email us at info at landlegacy.tv. We'll get you hooked up. But yeah. that that is the true value of these the shrub and and the vast shrublands that we've lost. I, I think that's such we talk about developing edge and creating edge along you know mature timber to field lots and like we've lost that type of transitional mm. cover woody cover along edges and across fields but fence rows used to have gosh, a lot of plums in them you're you're yeah. killing it right now because it, this is exactly what we're what we're preaching um uh, from from different wildlife aspects yeah and you know it's it's funny i i think from the from the prairie from the prairie aspect of it, shrubs and any woody cover at all has gotten a bad rap. Uh, we don't want to see woody cover or any kind of, you know, woody plant on our prairies. And I and I really believe our prairies had a significant shrubby component mm-hmm. because there's a lot of prairie species that need that shrub component, from bells vireos to to bobwhite quail. Yeah. And I think we've been biased against shrubs in a lot of places, and that that we really need to do a better job of establishing those shrubby thickets in places where um, where we've kind of biased against them and maybe some of our native grasslands or, or other places. So here's a theory uh, of mine, Frank, that I've always kind of... Prepare, cause prepare I think yourself, about, Frank. Yeah, when I say here's a theory of mine, <laughs> you never know what's going to come out. But in my <laughs> okay. mind, I'm picturing... You, I, I, we're on the exact same page. I, I believe there was a huge shrubby component among our native landscapes <laughs> pre-settlement. And I think about buffalo and and the grazing animals and how, you know, as they're moving through, they're wanting, you know, they're scratching hair off, scratching a winter coat off, or or trying to just itch a scratch, you know. And so they'll spend time around those shrubby components or those shrubby places, especially walking through a plum thicket. You could get plenty of scratching done in there. And it, it kind of, the loafing shade is what you hear a lot of. But then at mm-hmm. the same time, you get more uh, activity around there to where you get kind of a lot more turned up dirt. And we know kind of with quail, turned up dirt, but also having that cover creates some great benefits. So to me, I'm like, my gosh, this is this is how how we were able to have such high populations of game birds and, and other species. What do you think of yeah. that theory? Grassland birds, all, all, all yeah. types, non-game and game. Yep. I think you're right on. I, I, I do also share your thoughts that we had a much higher shrubby component pre-settlement. Um, we've got the species that, that rely on those shrubby components still here today. They're, they're not doing great. Think about the loggerhead shrike. They needed a shrubby component for, to impale their, you know, the mm-hmm. things that they caught and, and to nest in. Yep. Uh, Bell's vireos are one that, that is a grassland bird that absolutely has to have a shrubby component. Bobwhite quail, they don't persist in grasslands that don't have a shrubby component. So I, I think it's, and you're right about those, those shrubby components being a, an area where other critters would come and shade, and so you would have the turned up dirt, which would result in bare ground or a flush in ragweed or other, other annual weeds exactly. the following summer. Exactly. I, I think we're, we're definitely missing that. And I know as a, as a manager of public lands in, in Missouri, I manage some prairies that that there's a that there's long been like I said a bias against woody cover because you know unchecked it can take over the prairie or it could turn into trees which is we don't want but we don't want to go to the to the extreme where there's 
the monoculture of grass and forbs and absolutely no shrubs. We yep. need to have some of those shrubby features out there. So, yep, I, I think your theory is right on. And, and it's it's only, you know, right that these were found, the, the more woodier components are found in, you know, the top of a drain or along the banks of a, of a drain where fire wouldn't have ripped and been so intense there. So it had the opportunity to be able to seed and then grow, you know, pretty densely and what you know fire would kind of come into the the outer edges and damage those while you know the very center of these denser clusters of shrubs um they'd have the ability to survive and kind of take root and take hold and reseed and continue yeah. and you know to take place you know basic you know take over certain areas that weren't as intense um with, with fire and that's where you see these little pockets and again wooded drainages or you know, shrubby drainages um, mm-hmm. it just, it all makes sense. Yeah. So it's, getting, it's not rocket science. Getting back to, you know, now you, you've picked up, you, you say, if we're trying to take a farm and transform it into quail, and I know we're running out of time, so we're going to have to move through this, but, um, and it's probably getting close to into the, into the work day. Um, for you, you, you say, let's focus on getting the habitat in place for better brood rearing and better nesting cover. So you, mm-hmm. if, if, if we're saying we're purchasing a farm and there's still some non-native cool season grasses made up uh, across the landscape and there's not going to be any grazing done for me, I'm thinking let's remove the non-native turf grass first and get some more mm-hmm. natives, more annuals, more forbs back for better nesting. What, what would yep. you do next? So, well, I think you're right on. If, it, if it's got non-native turf grass like fescue or brome, get rid of it, put some native. It's just, if it's just plain bare dirt because it used to be crop, same thing, put some native grass in there. Uh, once you got that component in, in place, then I would, I, would, I would establish some woody shrubs. Now, now the thing about woody shrubs is they, they can, as you know, be very slow growing. So, what we do on some of our areas is we'll drag, we'll cut some trees down, some isolated tall trees that Kyle talked about in the previous podcast as being perfect perches for raccoons or raptors. We'll cut those down. We'll drag them to strategic locations, and that'll serve as sort of temporary woody cover in the in the limbs and stuff. So basically, just um, tree but it tops. also is a place where birds can deposit seeds and, and get. So you can maybe get a, a quicker response of, of shrubs there than what you're planting. But I would also plant some shrubs. I would plant some plums, some gray uh, dogwood, rough leaf dogwood, but I would put some of those down tree structures to give me a temporary, um, fairly usable woody cover component while my shrubs are coming on board. But I would definitely then break it up into units. However it fits naturally based on drainages on your property or based on uh, dominant wind direction or whatever it is, or neighboring landowners, however it is, break it up into units so that you can put management on a on a rotation on there. Like we talked about before, you don't want to burn the whole thing at once. You know, you'd want to burn a unit at a time um, and spread that out. So I would, I would definitely break it up into units and then begin my management um, of the property going forward. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. What are some of the things you would definitely want to look out for that's that are bad for quail management? Well, tall trees. So 
what we found in this quail study is that chronically low nest success and brood survival are really limiting quail growth on some of our conservation areas. So nest success of 30% is not sustainable. So mm. this chronically low nesting success is something that we've got to, to work on, and that comes with, with predation. That's caused by predation. And some of the things that we can control is, is predation um, from raptors or um, mesomammals mammals that use trees. So if there are any tall trees on your property, especially isolated tall trees or tall linear trees, I would get rid of them. You can cut them down and use them as down tree structures. You can cut them down, pile them, and burn them fairly quickly so that they don't become a skunk denning habitat. But tall trees can really be a killer because they provide perches for raptors and they provide escape cover for nest predators. I can um, think of multiple so those tall are, trees. That's, my... that's a key thing to look. Quail don't need trees. Tall yep. trees. Tall trees. There's that. Yep. That's funny. Deer don't either. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's um, very interesting. One what of the a... things is to... Go ahead. I was just going to say to to continually monitor your property for invasives. You know, I don't... Mm-hmm. You know, there's always going to be invasives in, in properties, some worse than others. I would I would hit, you know, fescue is a bad one. Brome is a bad one. Um I would definitely, because, you know, they if, if you ignore it long enough, it'll eventually, it'll swamp out your native grasses and you yes. lose the, the benefit there. So to be on, to, to, to annually assess your property for invasives um, and, and treat them, I think is vitally important too. Yes. What about, you didn't mention anything about cedar tree, eastern red cedar uh, monocultures being good quail habitat. Speak on that for a second. Yeah. Uh, it's not quail habitat. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't pay you to say that. Uh, we no, you I, just set it up on a T for them, <laughs> knock it out of the park. Yeah, why, why would you even mention that? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm about to hang up right now, actually. We get this rap. <laughs> we, we get this rap about hating eastern red cedars, and, and, and I, a lot of it, become, it comes down to it's just the loss of habitat and how they're not yeah. going back to that pre-settlement statement. You know, you read a lot of exploration journals, and you won't hear much about eastern red cedars. And knowing how they handle fire, you know that they didn't make up a large portion of the landscape. And so, right. and, and so, we hear a lot about people. I mean, almost daily, I'll see stuff on social media about people asking about what's the best cover for white-tailed deer, and people say red cedar thickets are are amazing. It's like the, the state nope. to me is like. The white-tailed deer was surviving long before there was large, large uh, eastern red cedar monocultures. They didn't need those. They're only using them because that's the only option. And so yes. I had to, I had to ask you. That's key right there. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And, so. and that's You'll the, find um, cubbies of quail around cedar thickets, but that's because that's the only woody component that they've got. Mm-hmm, and they're right. so darn invasive. I mean, that's, that's the thing is those female trees, they put Berries. off so much seed throw from uh and, and it's just you know you, you start heading west um in some of the grasslands and and especially down in the red hills of kansas where mm-hmm. um there's a big deer hunting culture and, and a lot of that a lot of the cedar um a lot of the cedar uh growth is perpetuated by people not wanting to lose their deer habitat but the locals there absolutely hate it because they lose grazing mm-hmm. Um, 
they lose grazing ground, and the deer do better in those wide open grasslands. Um, we recently had a meeting with some of those folks that are in the Red Hills, and they wish there was not a cedar tree around. And you know, they they say that we grow and and hold bigger deer in our open grasslands, and and so yeah, cedar trees can can be super invasive. It can just that's you know they're not bad to have one or two around, but they just produce so much seed and can become a problem so quickly yes well i'm glad you said it i had to ask <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah. that is anything else that comes to mind with real, real quick i, I do want to talk you know, ask you this or throw this out there um we, we talked about you know plains and native grasses and planting those but too dense of native grasses can be a negative is that correct and if so what would be a treatment or a management style that you would recommend to someone who's got too dense of grasses um, or just a a single grass component, not the forb situation? What would you recommend to them in that situation? Yeah, so you're right. Native grasses can become too thick. So the first thing that I would recommend is if you have the ability to graze, then graze it Mm -hmm. because you get that reduction of grass density. You get bare ground that the broods need, and then you'll also get a weedy component that comes in after that ground has been disturbed. And if it's and if it's common ragweed, that's okay. That's great, in fact, because sure. it's, it's a wonderful quail uh, food. Um, if you don't have the ability to, to graze, and I know not everybody does, mm-hmm. if you don't have the ability to graze, you can um, use herbicide treatments on your native grass. And I know a lot of folks are hesitant about that because they spent time and, and money and a lot of, you know, uh, investment in their native grass planting that they hate to to herbicide it and kill it. Sure. But you can lose, use a light rate to where you set it back. Mm-hmm. Um, Basically, if you will, you can, you open can spray up strips in it. Yeah. But, but what I what I see is is when we, even when we do this on private or on public land, excuse me, our our staff you know are so hesitant on killing that stuff because they they they've been invested in it they planted it 15 or 20 years ago and they, they're they're invested in it but i don't think we can spray it hard enough for quail we yeah. if, if we sprayed out entire strips of it and let it come back to ragweed that's that's would be the primo that would be the best mm. it'll eventually creep back in and, and become native grass again yeah. but i don't think we can spray it hard enough for quail uh, they they just they just don't need a, a heavy native grass component. So, so heavy forb component is, is great, and I think part of yes, part of absolutely. that has been a little bit of the, uh, if you will, the emphasis on the CRP and the value of that program. And don't get me wrong, it's been great for for some species, but it's been very focused on basically just the grasses and the three big ones, Indian. Big Blue and Little Blue, and, but we've yep. in those plantings and those recommendations in that program, we've missed and left out that importance of a forb content. And as we know from from the wildlife standpoint, the value of forage, we need those forbs. And and I think the the focus has been left off the forbs, diversity within those. Um, so again, the grasses, those big three, it, honestly, can be improved truthfully. From, from a, whether you're managing for deer, for turkey, or quail, um, truthfully, you, you need those forb components, and that's a great way. Yeah, you're um, you're absolutely right. What we've started to to do on some of the land that I manage is, is some of the more recent plantings that we've done. 
I'll go to less to to right around a pound per acre of grass, and the rest of my mix is forbs. Whereas five to ten years ago, we were planting, you know, five to to seven pounds per acre of grass, mm-hmm. and it looked great the mm-hmm. first year, but it became too unusable, too thick for quail within a couple of years. So we're really backing down on the grass. You need it. It's an important part of the quail nesting uh, substrate. But we have, as you said, we've overlooked, we've overemphasized grass at the to the detriment of forbs. Right. I, I think I think we need to make a movement right here, right now. Bring back the forbs and bring back the plums. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Earth, I'm Earth, with you. Earth Day, we're gonna hand out plum seedlings. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah, I will. I will be on that committee. Right on, right on. Awesome. Well, man, I appreciate you coming on and and sharing some insight. One of many. We'll get you back. Oh, Oh, you bet. This has been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this. I I could talk about this, well, at least until quitting time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then pick up tomorrow at 8 o'clock again. We could fire back up. Yeah, we sure do appreciate it. A lot of great insight. Anytime. uh, I I know everybody's going to enjoy it. Oh, yeah. And – probably have some follow-up questions you guys if if you do have questions info at land and tv and we can we can get you the answers from frank or kyle and and uh, we'll definitely look forward to having you guys on in the future no and, doubt uh, anyway frank we appreciate it you bet thanks again guys yeah.